We're delighted to introduce you to Indian Summer Festival's Ideas series. Every year, the festival hosts inspiring talks by some of the most creative thinkers and writers in the world. Our Ideas series sponsor is Creative BC. Special thanks to our founding partner, Simon Fraser University, major partners, Langara College and the University of British Columbia, media partners, the George Strait, CBC and Spice Radio, and our funders, Government of Canada, City of Vancouver, Vancouver Foundation, the province of BC, and the BC Arts Council. Welcome to Indian Summer Festival's Ideas Series. Kicking off our Ideas Series is thinker, writer, world traveler, and TED favorite Pico Iyer on love, life, and mortality. With his latest book, Autumn Light, Pico brings us a lyrical meditation on the impermanence of life. Following the unexpected death of his Japanese father-in-law, Pico undertakes a life-affirming investigation into the human condition, inspired by the wisdom of the cultural traditions of his adopted country of Japan. With this book and this talk, Pico reminds us never to take the people and things we hold dear for granted. Pico Ayer on Love, Life and Mortality was presented by Khan Zach Elish Lithwick and supported by David Lamb Center for International Communication and the Hari Sharma Foundation. Hello, Vancouver, and thank you for being here today. I know um, you were the lucky early birds who got the first round of tickets to Pico Ayer's um, appearance in, in Vancouver. So um, we're really excited. And we're warmed up for you <laughs> because we had a discussion from 2, um, two o'clock today and uh, got to know each other a little bit then. Um, I'm amazed so many people here. I'm worried <laughs> that you're all trying to get to the planetarium and came through the wrong door. But <laughs> <laughs> no stars here, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> I know Pico needs no introduction, but I'm going to hazard one anyway. Um, Outside Magazine calls Pico Iyer arguably the greatest living travel writer, and the New Yorker says, as a guide to far-flung places, he can hardly be surpassed. Many people know Pico from his three talks for TED, which have received more than 8 million views so far. And um, I was one of those views um, for all three videos, but I certainly kind of had kind of... Um, kind of a hair raising along my arm moment when um, Pico spoke about the global soul, um, about this kind of new generation that so many of us uh, identify with where we have homes in more than one places, hearts in more than one places, and, um, and we travel the world and feel at home in all those places and in ourselves. And um, hearing Pico speak about the kind of half Japanese, half German, I'm half Taiwanese and half um, Jewish, um, but who is just as comfortable in the East as the West, um, just felt like, it felt like a homecoming, and mm -hmm. it feels especially personal for me um, to speak to Pico, but having spoken to many of you, I know it's very personal for all of you, and he brings out these resonances for all of us, um, which is a very special uh, thing um, to, to, be, to be seen, to be identified. So thank you, Pico, for that. Thank you. Um, Pico's been an essayist for time since 1986, and a constant contributor to the New York Times, Harper's Granta, and more than 200 other newspapers and magazines worldwide. And he has published introductions to 70 other works, not to mention writing Leonard Cohen's sleeve notes, <laughs> which not many have a claim to. <laughs> um, but most of all, in coining the phrase global soul in his book of that name, Pico freed anyone whose heart holds more than one home from the concept of home being fixed to a geographic location. He was born in Oxford, England, to parents from India, and educated at Eton, Oxford, and Harvard. For close to 30 years, Pico Iyer has been based in rural Japan with his longtime sweetheart while spending part of each year in a Be Benedictine hermitage in California. 
And I'm very pleased to say that we have a rare confluence where um, his partner Hiroko is here in the audience with us, which he feels extra special. Um, so welcome Hiroko to Vancouver. Pico's latest book, Autumn Light, Season of Fire and Farewells, sees him grappling with a question we all have to live with, how to hold on to the things we love, even though we know that we and they are dying. So Pico, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, what a beautiful introduction. Just keep on talking, and <laughs> I want to listen to more and more along these lines. I, I don't want to stampede, so <laughs> I'm, I'm going to ask you a question immediately. Uh -oh. <laughs> I knew it was too good to last. <laughs> so we are here in Vancouver. Um, where seasons fade and return, all in a mist of rain and evergreen trees. Mm. Um, and you have come here from Japan, um, speaking of autumn and light and spring. Um, do you feel that there's a specificity to Japan's seasons that bring insights different to those in other lands? Oh, what a lovely question. Um, you didn't ask that to me before, so I'm unprepared. <laughs> but <this laughs> I'm doing this just for you. <laughs> Of course, impermanence is a part of human existence everywhere, but I think Japan is the only country I know where impermanence is almost the central doctrine, almost the religion of the place. And as you know, because you've been there and you've lived in East Asia a lot, people are paying much keener attention to the seasons in Japan and one of your ancestral homes, China and Taiwan, than almost anywhere I know. And many of you have probably been to Japan and you know that if you go to the fanciest hotels in Kyoto, they'll literally have boards in the lobby listing 25 of the most famous temples. And this one is partially red leaves now. The, re the maples are in an intermediate state here. The maples are blazing fantastically. On the TV news, they're telling you every day how the cherry blossoms are moving from Hokkaido south. And there's a sense in which people orient their lives around the seasons. Mm -hmm. And as you know, before I moved to Japan, I was living in California. And there, there was always this dangerous sense that we were orienting ourselves around ourselves without a sense of something larger than us to put us in place. And so, of course, as you say, Vancouver has beautiful seasons. But I feel in Japan, everyone is bowing and kneeling before the seasons mm -hmm. as people here might before whatever they regard as their deities. Uh, and that's how they understand this dance of, of changelessness and change. And as you said in your question beautifully about returning and fading, that nothing ever ends that we're part of the cycle and that autumn is bringing winter closer, but it's also the first step towards spring mm. and towards rebirth. Mm. And therefore, we can't see things in simple black or white terms. Autumn mm -hmm. isn't only the rustling of the leaves and the falling away of things, but it's a harbinger of the return of things. Uh, mm. And I, th I like to be freed from that sense that life is moving in a straight line, mm -hmm. because probably it's not. And in my life, it's usually one step forward, six steps back, three steps sideways, but yeah, uh, and then I end up where I began. Mm. <laughs> uh, so it's just a, it's a greater consciousness, perhaps, about the forces around. And mm. um, I know I was saying to you before, living in England and the US, I, I was the most insensitive person to the natural beauty around me. But soon after I arrived in Japan, I would smell this citrusy fruit or plant in late October and say, this is October 20th. Mm. And I'd see the plum blossoms. That means it's the end of February and the cherry blossoms are on the way. So even the most impervious person gets sensitized because everyone around me is taking her cues from, from the flowerings and the fadings. Mm -hmm. and, and do you feel this is specific to Japan or will we be able to imbibe some of it even mm. in foreign lands? Or is it something about 
Hmm. The streets of Japan or the trees of Japan? I think it's something that any of us can learn from, not just, Jap I mean, I think Japan learned it from China. Uh, and I've been in Vancouver many times when the cherry blossoms are flowering. And really, of course, they're sending the same message here that they would be in Tokyo, which is have things blaze for a second, and then they leave 10 days later. And I know in Vancouver, as in Japan, people rejoice in their flowering because it's so brief yes. and because they can't take it for granted. And mm -hmm. that seems to be how my Japanese friends, but people here too, understand life. The mm. fact that it's not endless is exactly why I have to delight in this moment when I'm getting to talk to you and the sun has come out on this yes. otherwise rainy uh, midsummer day and things are never going to be again exactly the, the way they are now. And I yeah. can't count on anything, so let's enjoy this moment. And yeah. as you say, I think that's very much a universal uh, truth. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's, I feel it's been at the core of Japan for, for a long time. Mm, yeah. I sometimes, uh, in other places, maybe we overlay on it ideology or certain forms of organized religion, but Japan is relatively free of those, and I think the seasons are the religion of Japan mm. in some ways. Mm. So. Well, I really appreciate you bringing the outer weather into our conversation, and we've been experiencing different climates as we've spoken over the hours, so it'll, it'll be interesting. It was raining when we first spoke, and now, now the sun's shining on all of us, so it'll, it'll be interesting having this conversation and see how that affects us. Um, I was struck by a seasonal analogy about Japan early on in the book. Mm. Cherry blossoms, pretty and frothy as schoolgirls' giggles, are the, face of the are the face the country likes to present to the world, all pink and white eroticism. But it's the reddening of the maple leaves under a blaze of ceramic blue sky that is the place's secret heart. And it reminded me of um, something on your website, which is an amazing document, and very Pico's website is worth visiting, um, where you've literally divided into inner worlds and outer worlds. Mm. And I was wondering, is there an inner and outer season? You know, is, is spring a more outer time and autumn a more inner time? Or I am love I, that. Am and I, and am I, think I inferring too much? <laughs> no, I think autumn is a time of, of windowedness and reflection, and therefore of depth. And I think that's why uh, maybe my Japanese friends and neighbors cherish autumn more than spring because it's deeper and because it's a journey into reality. And it's, it's a season about loss and death and things we can't look away from. Um, spring is a season of, of festivity and efflorescence. Mm -hmm. But the, my Japanese friends, I think, know that that's not going to last forever. Um, and I, I think again and again in the literatures of East Asia, there's this sense that sadness lasts longer than mm. joy, and it's the reality we have to learn to live with. Because, of course, it's easy to delight in first love. Mm. Mm. But what do you do with first loss or second loss or mm -hmm. enduring loss? And that's a greater challenge that perhaps we have to dig deeper in ourselves to come up with the answers for. So I'd never thought of what you just said, but it, it makes absolute sense to me. And you probably know in Japan, there's one word used for the self that exists in public. And there's a totally different word for the self that exists privately behind closed doors. Oh. And that's why I think it's that private self that is in the autumn. Mm. Uh, and, and the cheerful, buoyant, frothy self of cherry blossoms is what Japan presents to the world. Everyone mm. who's been to Japan knows when you go there, everyone's smiling all the time, but that doesn't mean they're happy. Mm. Uh, and mm. there's this wonderful moment in Tokyo Story, one of the great Japanese films, where an older woman has just died, and there's a young woman, maybe 20 years old, and she doesn't know what to do with death. Mm. 
and she turns to her sister-in-law, who's maybe in her late 20s, mm -hmm. and says, well, life is disappointing, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And the older lady, but still young woman, flashes this radiant smile and says, yes, mm -hmm. yes, it's disappointing. But her face is all light, and mm -hmm. she has lost her husband in the war. Mm -hmm. And I must say, some of you may know the films of the great Japanese director, Ozu, from the 1950s, Tokyo Story I just mentioned, Late Spring. One of the things I always love about them is that quite often, I was saying this two nights ago, um, there's a sound of a boisterous festival in the streets, even as there's a sound of somebody weeping next door. And I think in Japan, those two are always intertwined, as in the yin-yang symbol, mm -hmm. that within happiness, there's a little point of sadness, because happiness doesn't last forever. Mm -hmm. And within sadness, there's a point of, of happiness, because mm -hmm. sadness is where beauty often is. I mean, Japanese art, in a typical haiku, it's usually about loneliness and loss, mm -hmm. the plover flying back at dusk, the lonely boat moored as the sun is mm -hmm. setting, uh, the falling of, of the leaves. And I think that's where the Japanese gravitate towards, because mm -hmm. that's where most of us live. Again, I, I was saying earlier how in Japan, it's sometimes said life is a joyful participation in a world of sorrows. Mm. And I think the Japanese know more than some people how it's precisely because we live in a land of sorrows that we feel the joy. Yes. If we were living for a million years, we wouldn't appreciate every moment the way we're obliged to. Mm. I love that there needs to be both of those. Yes. You know, I, I, I'm getting the image of the Japanese celebrations of spring, which is everyone gets together under the tree, and they're yes, drinking, yes, and they're yes, loud. Yes, yes. And there's still uh, observations and celebrations in the autumn, but it's a quiet time, and like you said, observing the poignancy and the passing. Yes. No, well said. And uh, maybe you've observed. Have you observed the cherry blossom celebrations in Japan? Because yes. It sounds yeah. like you have, yeah. where everyone gathers and picnics mm. and gets very drunk and ball songs. And, and in a way, it's a yeah. young person's festival. Yes, it feels yes, a little bit precisely. Yeah. And I think uh, autumn is much more the season for writing haiku, painting, mm. as you say, going, going inward. But that neither exists without the other. It's yeah. like breathing in and breathing out. Yes, yes, that's, that's so beautiful. Perhaps this is a good time for us to delve into the book a little bit, and maybe yeah. you can share a reading with us. And yes. Get us going. Uh, so maybe I'll read a section about um, how autumn plays out in our neighborhood. And I'll just tell you by way of um, in embarrassed introduction, our neighborhood is the most boring place on earth. It looks like a modern suburb of Los Angeles. Uh, it doesn't have any temples or shrines. And the challenge of this book is about how most of us live in not such exalted places. How do we find beauty and wonder in our day-to-day -day lives? And we've been in the same place for 30 years, and when to the outside eye, it looks as if there's nothing special about it. Um, easy to fall in love with Kyoto, less easy to fall in love with a 1970s mock Californian suburb mm. outside Kyoto. <laughs> um, <laughs> and yet you make us do it. <laughs> or try to make myself do it, at least, yeah. yes. <laughs> <clears throat> As November dawns, we step into a world of light. The whole room seems to pulse with smudged gold as the sun rises above the hills beyond us and comes through the diffusing thick panes of our frosted glass windows. I remember my surprise when Hiroko told me that the builder of this place, who ended up calling it Memphis Apartments in honor of Elvis, <laughs> originally wanted to make it a church. The heavy pebbled glass spreads light as if it were incense. 
Now she puts Bach on our system, and very soon the sun is making gold stripes across the terrace with such extravagance that I'm pulled in every direction all at once. A great rejoicing, so it seems, which awakens gratitude and delight, but the sun is passing across the terrace earlier and earlier, and by mid-afternoon it will disappear behind a roof. It's nearly impossible to stay indoors on a day like this, not least because so many around me are being pulled almost magnetically out into the sharpened sunshine to marvel at the fact that the sky is so blue even as the leaves rust and begin to flutter down. Many of Kyoto's temples open their gates after nightfall now, another of the city's fresh and ingenious seductions, and soon we'll follow lanterns past stands of bamboo eerily lit up, watch fast-moving ghosts holographically projected on raked sand gardens. In the shallow crystal pond of Kodaiji, the five-pointed maples are almost more brilliant than on the trees that the temple's water reflects. In our private lives, however, we're perched on the edge of a cliff, and the slightest movement could send us tumbling over. Every time I come back to the flat, I look by instinct for the green flashing button on the phone. No news is likely to be good news. And when I walk into the park, I can't help but wonder how often my mother-in-law will see the maples again. I take myself to banish the thought to the nearest shrine where the light is slicing the courtyard into diamonds. And I notice, as never before, that people have placed coins around rocks all across the forest. There are stone lanterns everywhere, as if the whole wilderness were some haunted church. I decide to take a train into central Naira today. I cannot afford to squander this moment. And in the sun-washed carriage, I find myself looking at the hands on every side of me, tapping away on a smartphone, mm -hmm. tightly gripping the handle of a designer bag holding a toddler steady as the train rocks and rattles. The one part of Japan in which age cannot be concealed, hands tell the truth even when mouths and eyes cannot, is also the most beautiful. In the deer park, an old woman has sat herself on a bench to transcribe the autumn colors in a sketchbook. Two toddlers are stumbling their way into learning to walk on the grass nearby. A deer is chasing some poor visitor into the store near to where special deer cookies are on sale for the equivalent of $1.50. <laughs> if they're true messengers of the gods, these deer are as ungovernable as Zeus or Hera. <laughs> Around me, there's a chorus. Wow, aren't the maples beautiful? And the chorus itself lends brightness to the day. Mm. A woman leads her dog, wrapped in a red blanket, up a slope and tilts her head up, up, up to where the leaves are picked out against the blue. Quite something, though, she says to her four-legged companion. A young girl in a denim jacket with frills guides her grandmother very slowly by the hand, then sets her down in front of the turning leaves, a classic autumn tableau. Would you like, a passing woman suggests, and the girl hands over her camera and hurries off to take her place next to the old lady. Now you, asks the granddaughter, springing up. 
Across the world, people are marking the Day of the Dead today. But in the park, the air so cleansed that the trees seem to gleam in the freshened morning. It's not skeletons I see, so much as aging elders struggling for breath. Death, dying, is the art we have to master, it seems to say, not death. Late love settles into us as spring romances never could. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I, it's, um, it's so beautiful reading these words on the page and then even more to hear them in your voice. Oh, thank you. They feel so familiar. Um, so you referenced in that passage the, uh, the Day of the Dead. And yes. um, you mentioned it a couple of times. Um, it's a day when the dead can visit the living, and everyone gathers and has conversations, and uh, it's, um, it's quite beautiful. And I was wondering, how does this thinning of the line between the worlds of the living and the dead inform an understanding of impermanence in life in Japan? Uh, it suggests that nothing ever goes away. Hmm. And I think one of the things that makes Japan such a crowded, charged landscape for the Japanese, if not for us foreigners, is that the dead have just moved into the next room. So six, uh, this book begins with my father-in-law's death, and so that explains some of what I just read. And it was six years ago, but to this day, every morning, my wife wakes up very early. She heats up water uh, for his favorite kind of tea. She gathers her father's favorite snack. She puts it out for him every day, six years after he departed. She regularly goes and talks to her grandmother, who left the earth in 1979. And I think many old cultures share this sense mm. that um, the ancestors are our tutors, even when they've moved on to another place. Mm. And as you know, because I remember you were referring to the Obon Festival mm -hmm. in, in mid-August in Japan, um, the whole country more or less stops. There's a lantern placed at every gravestone so that the dead can come back and visit the earth for three days and then find their way back to the heavens. Mm -hmm. And since this book, um, this book is set in 2013, but just last year, I lost my mother-in-law. And we were with her in her final hours and subsequently, and I was really moved and startled, I think, that long after she'd stopped breathing, all her friends and family would come, they'd talk to her, they'd pour out her favorite beer, put it out for her. Uh, her eight-year-old great-granddaughter was there, as, and learning that her great-grandmother wasn't necessarily gone, she had just moved into a different state. She was mm. less reachable in some ways, but one could still speak to her. Mm. Um, she was still a presence. Everything she conferred on her great-granddaughter wasn't gone. Mm. Uh, and I, I know I said to you before, I had this funny experience, which is that my mother-in-law used to love reading books all the time. And my wife has never been a great reader. But since her mother died, she finds she's reading exactly the same books that her mother um, used to read. Today, she was reading her mother's favorite mm. book. It was almost as if her mother was working through her, mm -hmm. um, not just speaking through her, but actually turning the pages through her. And she herself was registering with surprise, you know, mm. I've become my mother. Mm. And of mm. course, we all become our mothers as we get older. In other <laughs> words, we try when we're young to be the opposite of our parents and find we become our parents. Mm -hmm. But this is a much nicer inhabiting because it means mm. we haven't lost them. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. 
and they are their parents, and there's that long lineage. Exactly, which is quite exactly, quite which is one reason why, for good reasons or bad, I think Japan has changed very little. Mm. And when you go there, you're often startled by the cutting-edge fashions and the, the high-tech gizmos. But I think the longer you spend in Japan or many a traditional culture, the more you see how deeply its roots are, as you suggest, in 1,400 years ago. Mm -hmm. And that the Japan you see now is not a million years different from um, the way it would have been in the seventh century. And I was mentioning before how we live in this mock Californian suburb uh, where there isn't a single temple or shrine and, and even the main streets are called park dory and school dory using the English words. But the city next to which we live is from the eighth century. It was the capital in the year 710, Nara. And for all the, the McDonald's outlets and shopping malls, really what's governing Nara are the 1,200 wild deer at the center of it, mm -hmm. and those ancient spirits, I think. Mm -hmm. um, which is why Japan's not really on the same wavelength as the rest of the world, maybe. Mm -hmm. Yes, you have this um, wonderful passage about um, how Japan, your apartment feels spacious, but um, and the air, but it feels crowded only because of all the, I think it says, the presence of household deities and ghosts, the spirits that for my neighbors inhabit every last desk box of chocolate. So there's this constant presence of spirit, which, uh, which um, informs the experience of Japanese um, and is quite beautiful. Yes, thank you. Uh, yes, I think the lines between animate and inanimate are very differently drawn in Japan mm -hmm. from here. Now, I remember when I first went in 1985, like many people, I saw how it functions like clockwork. It's so mm -hmm. seamless. And I thought, goodness, everything's functioning as if it's a society of robots. And now I've been there a long time, I realize it's mm -hmm. the other way around, that robots there have spirits. Robots yes. have souls. It's not that humans like robots, but robots are like humans. Mm -hmm. And my wife often tells me how when she was a little girl, she punched this desk. Her father would say, you must apologize mm. to that desk. It has a spirit. Mm. It's done nothing to hurt you. And punching that desk is like punching Anna. Um, this, this vase, this book, this pen, they all have spirits. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, it's very crowded in, in that way because it's such a um, saturated landscape. Mm. Um, and, and that's why the decluttering guru, Marie Kondo, says, when you throw out your, your dress, ask it if it's sparking joy. Have a conversation with your, with your dress. Yes. Uh, when you're throwing out your teddy bear, close his eyes so he doesn't feel that he's being thrown out. Yeah. And that sounds <laughs> so strange to us, but to the Japanese, it wouldn't sound strange at all. No, um. no. Um, and I want to touch also on, again, from the passage you spoke about uh, late love and how dying is the art that we have to master. And um, we've also spoken a bit in our last question um, on how our ancestors inhabit us and, and come yes. back down to us. But it's also part of how your relationship evolves um, with Hiroko, because as you both experienced the passing of a parent, and now maybe two parents. Um, so can you... Can you speak to the ways in which the engagement with loss and grief of loved ones are also gaining new understandings of relationships? Huh. <laughs> I suppose when I was a kid, I was really worried of about dying. Yeah. And the longer I've lived, the more I realize that the great fear is losing people. Mm. I'm less afraid of dying, afraid of dying than of my wife dying. Mm. And then I have to live with the absence. Mm. Um, and that's why the couple's traditional question of each other, which features in this book, is, you know, please don't die before me. Mm. Of 
who will be the one first to go? Who will mm. be the one, therefore, to be left with the seeming mm. absence and the loneliness? Uh, and in that sense, as you traverse through life and you see more and more people falling away, um, it's hard not to wonder which of us is going to be left in the lurch, as mm. it were. And I think people often see the death of a loved one as a kind of diversion. I mean, there's an anger at the universe that mm -hmm. sometimes is channeled towards the person who's moved on to wherever the next place is, mm. um, which is, yeah, it's a curious thing. Mm. Um, and there's another absence in the book, um, which is of, of the brother figure yes. In, yes. in the book. And um, you had a very interesting reflection of how part of what causes absence was an exposure to the West, and yes. part of your presence is an exposure to the East. Can you speak a bit about those relationships that you know each of you have had with, um, with the, different, the different cultures? Yes. So the drama of this book, insofar as there is drama, and there isn't much, <laughs> uh, is that on the first page, I, I hear about my father-in-law dying. And my m wife has to move her 86-year-old mother, whom her 91-year-old father has been looking after, into a nursing home. But then she has to get a will signed by her brother, and he lives only 15 minutes away, but he cut off the entire family 25 years before. So I've never met my brother-in-law, though I've known my wife for 32 years. And um, my brother-in-law sounds like a very intriguing, intelligent person. He's the only person in his little neighborhood in Southern Kyoto who went to study in, in North America, in Kansas. And then he became a Jungian psychologist and went to Switzerland and got his doctorate writing his uh, thesis in, in German, I think, or in English, in Jungian psychology. And when he came back to Japan, as many uh, psychologists might recommend, he wrote a long letter to his parents about all the things they'd done wrong. But then, surprisingly, he sent it to his parents. <laughs> and, um, and he never saw them again. <laughs> and as the book develops, first his father has died, and we're waiting to see if he'll come and commiserate with his mother. And then his mother is fading. And we're constantly wondering, when is he going to show up? And while his mother is, is faltering, and how, we don't know how much longer she has to live. Uh, and he doesn't want to miss this opportunity. And I'm always very touched that often I'll wake up in the morning, and my wife will be sending a postcard. And I'll mm. say, who are you writing to? She'll say, my brother. I haven't seen him for 25 years. But I want to assure him that we're well, and that I'm happy. And I want to tell him my, my mother's getting really old. And please, will he just come and visit her? And occasionally, when I would visit my mother-in-law, as her mind was beginning to come apart, she'd say, oh, I saw my son today. And we didn't know if she really had. She hoped that she really had, but it was more likely she wished she had. She was dreaming him into existence. Or she would see a picture of her grandson and say, there's my son, uh, imposing the son she wished she had on the grandson she really did have. Uh, and of course, it's heartbreaking to, to see somebody move towards her end and always thinking about the prodigal son who's just in two stations down the line but whom she hasn't set eyes on for a, for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. So I don't know exactly why he cut it off, but I thought maybe he cut his family off because he believed in a form of Western psychology, which makes a lot of sense here, but I'm not sure if it translates to a Japanese situation where traditionally the ancestors and the parents and elders are the ones to be venerated. Mm. And although everyone is guilty of being human, in Japan, which is a culture of conflict avoidance, people will do anything rather than, say, accuse anybody mm. of anything. So he felt that there was a wisdom in telling his parents the ways in which they'd hurt him. Mm. But in Japan, it was almost as if that would get lost in translation. 
And the Buddha famously said, when an arrow is sticking out of your flesh, don't argue about where the arrow came from, what kind of arrow it is, just pull it out. Mm. Just ease the suffering. And I think that's how pragmatic East Asia has often worked. Mm. And the analysis that he was bringing from his Jungian training might just not necessarily always have been the best thing mm. um, in the Japanese setting. Mm. Um, but that's, that's my projection. And as you said in the second part of your question, I shouldn't give him a hard time for bringing the West into the East when I'm spending all my time trying to bring Eastern wisdom into mm. the West. So, um, no, I'm not implying any. It's just no, a, it's I know an you weren't. But it's, but it's yes. a fascinating um, juxtaposition of the presence of the dead and the living and these, yes. you know, these absences that inhabit our lives. And, mm. and I found it very poignant and, and beautiful. Um, well, thank you. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, I, I could say. And sad. And sad. And sad. <laughs> yes. yes. And, and, and sad is where a book about Japan needs to be, yes. I feel. Yeah. Uh, I wrote a book about Japan my first year there, 31 years ago, and that was much more happy and jubilant, mm -hmm. partly because I was still very much a Westerner. But mm -hmm. in this book, I'm trying to be as much inside my neighborhood as possible, and mm -hmm. therefore th I want the, um, the wistfulness of things and the way it plays off the buoyancy of things to be at the center. Not, in other words, the non-binary complexity of things. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. I think, of mm -hmm. course, when I arrived in Japan, I was very aw making divisions, yes. east and west, him and her, happy and sad. Yes. And the longer I've been there, the less those divisions have seemed relevant. Mm -hmm. The one other thing I'll say uh, for any of you who have to endure this book, it's a very, very tiny book. I spent 16 years trying to make it tiny, because just as Anna is suggesting, it's a book about absences and silences, and the way that absences will fill a room more than a presence. And I was saying to Anna before how many of you know that experience if you go into your sweetheart's room when she's not there, and you just see a strand of hair or a postcard on the wall or a letter she's writing, she comes home to you in all her innocence and her hopefulness and her longings, even more than when she's two feet in front of you speaking. And so this is very much a book about how when people aren't there, they fill you up, as with my missing brother-in-law, even more than the people that you see around you mm. every day. And mm. the one other thing um, I will say parenthetically is you can all tell I'm of Indian ancestry, which means my mind is like a Bollywood stage set in hyperdrive, <laughs> um, singing, dancing, somersaulting, caterwauling in, uh, <laughs> in overbright, riotous colors. So it was really a challenge in this book to keep out everything eventful, everything mm. in bold type, all the drama of life, to try to catch the quiet river behind the skyscrapers of events, which is really where most of us are living most of our lives. Mm. And because I was describing 32 years of my life here, that's more than half a lifetime's worth of emotions and encounters and yes. exchanges. And so although our apartment is maybe twice the size of the stage, it's very, very small, we have one closet. And I think in that closet, I have maybe 8,000 pages of notes about Japan, because in 32 yeah. years, of course, I transcribe everything that I see and hear around me every day for 32 years. And so each day when I was writing this book, I would diligently take out 12 pages of notes, and I'd organize them and annotate them and find out where they fit within the narrative. And then I'd go down the street to buy a carton of milk from mm. the market, and I'd come back with 17 new pages <laughs> of notes. Uh, <laughs> of all the new things I had to include. So mm -hmm. I was really going brilliantly backwards for many, many years. Um, but I think the reason I went to Japan first and what I was trying to catch in this book was very much what you were describing, which is what I would call the empty room. And mm -hmm. all of you in Vancouver know that um, the Japanese aesthetic traditionally is that when you walk into a tatami room, there's just nothing there but a vase and a scroll. 
And because there's nothing else there, you bring all your attention to the bars and the scroll, and mm. you find everything you want and more mm. in those two objects. Mm. So most of the time here, I was trying to take out stuff, yeah. um, partly to catch the absence of my father-in-law, the absence of my father, as you mentioned, the absence of my brother-in-law. Mm -hmm. um, because we think a lot about what we don't have and so little about what we do. Yeah, and I, I completely see that. Um, this, uh, this, well, let me ask it as a question. Oh, um, I wanted to hear what you're going to say. If you can remember <laughs> that. But, uh, They're not here. Um, well, oh. it, it, I'm, I'm so interested in your reflection on the teachings of the desk, and you have a literal passage about that in, in the book. Um, your writing practice is this distillation. Yes. Um, and I read this the autumn light in in um, in congruence with your book Lady and the Monk. Yes. Which is when you first arrived yes. in Japan and you had some of that Bollywood element of yes, like yes. I see this and I, I see the good and I see the bad and right. you know the um, invoking the literature and the music and and and, and the street culture. Um, you've described it a little bit, but has has your writing reflections and experience of Japan evolved over time? Or is the writing a constant relearning? For example, you mentioned there's an absence now that you've inserted into yeah. the work. And yeah. it seems that's very intentional. Very. Well, thank, thank you for registering that. It takes a fellow writer to, to discern that so sensitively. But very much, the writing is a relearning. Writing is a learning process. It's a way mm -hmm. of thinking through what I'm seeing, not to come to a conclusion, but often to see how much I don't understand and never will. But you're absolutely right. Um, I feel that every one of us takes one question through life, and it's basically the same question. Mm. And uh, writers do that as much as anyone, but we try and change our clothes so we look different. One day you're wearing a jacket, the next day a, a T-shirt, but mm -hmm. you're the same person. And, um, and certainly the way I approach things is very different. As you say, if I were um, describing this room, 32 years ago, I would indeed try to bring in everything I've ever read, every song I've ever heard, and all of the 140 people in here. Mm -hmm. If I was trying to describe this room now, I would just alight on the MOV at the back and, and try and play out one tiny detail as much as possible, which may be a way of saying I'd moved a little bit from India to Japan. Mm -hmm. uh, India, I think of as a maximalist culture, which mm -hmm. is all about abundance and bounty, and Japan, a uh, culture of subtractions. Mm -hmm. The more you take out, the more you're charging what remains. Mm -hmm. So that may that may well be a, um, a, mm -hmm. a change, though probably the questions are the same ones and they've always been. Um, and mm -hmm. I think the other thing, I probably, uh, I know I said this to you before, but growing up in England and the United States, I felt I was taught how to, s I was being taught or encouraged to speak. And I went to Japan to learn how to listen. Mm -hmm. And mostly to listen to silence, because mm -hmm. I think Japan is the language, it, it's important, it's handy to speak Japanese when you go there, but more handy to speak silence and to mm. speak nuance and to speak everything that's unsaid. And mm -hmm. it took me a while after I got to Japan to learn that the ideal Japanese date is you go with your friend or sweetheart to a movie, you take it in with rapt attention, mm. you go home and you never say a word about the movie. <laughs> because um, words separate and silence is a form of communion. Uh, and uh, I think the Japanese, we often talk about the economy of Japan, and what mm -hmm. most moves me is the verbal and emotional economy of Japan. As mm -hmm. you know, not so many emotions are registered in the face, mm -hmm. and conversation should involve as few words as possible, yes. because words are going to push us apart. A different form of economy. Exactly, Brevity. exactly, yes. I love that, I love that. Um, since we're speaking on silence, um, a lighter thread through this is uh, uh -huh. sitting zazen, 
and mindfulness and kind of the spiritual aspects of Japan that first drew you there. Um, can, can you share some of how that has also influenced you over time? Maybe it spared me from explanations. I mean, I shouldn't talk much about Zen because I've never practiced it. Mm -hmm. um, and as Anna's saying, when I first went to Japan in 1987, I, I had been working in Midtown Manhattan writing articles for Time Magazine, four blocks from Times Square. And in my 20s and my innocence, I thought, well, the perfect antidote to this is a monastery on the back streets of Kyoto, thrown straight from Time Magazine to a monastery, and uh, to spend a year there. And my high-minded year in the monastery lasted exactly a week, <laughs> which was long enough to see a monastery in Kyoto is much too similar to the English boarding schools where I served time for <laughs> 10 years. Uh, though now, where I've ended up with my wife is actually quite similar to the monastery I first dreamed of. Uh, but uh, what little I've, known, I've learned about um, Zen probably comes from the easy way, watching other people practice it. Okay. And mm -hmm. realizing, again, that um, words are extraneous, mm -hmm. and that I feel at the essence of Japan is not that we need to understand everything around us, but we need to know how to live with what we can't understand. Because most of the things that have happened in my life, good or bad, are far beyond my comprehension. Mm -hmm. You know, one day I was dreaming of being a writer, and suddenly my house burnt down, and I lost everything I own in the world, mm -hmm. and including that dream in some ways. The next, you know, another time I step into a temple and I meet a Japanese married woman and suddenly she becomes my wife. Mm -hmm. The next day I'm in a car crash and almost die in Bolivia. Mm. The, the next day suddenly I've got um, a job beyond my dreams. And I think most of us, mm. I, I, when I was in my 20s, I, like many of us, anguished a lot. What should I do? Mm. What career path should I follow? Should I marry this person or not? Mm. And at this point in life, I see that life makes much better plans for me than I ever could have. And that mm. actually, as I say, almost everything significant that's happened has been beyond my anticipation or control. And that all that's really required is being responsive to something else working through us, whatever you want to call it, mm -hmm. that is wiser, perhaps, than, than we are. So Japan, I think, has been part of that process of understanding how much there is that can't be understood. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you mentioned when in your introduction Leonard Cohen, and yes. I first met him when he was living for five and a half years as a mm -hmm. Zen monk. Uh, and again, one of the most moving things I've seen in life was Leonard Cohen with probably his best friend in life who was his Japanese teacher for 43 years and drinking buddy. Mm. And uh, the Japanese teacher spoke very limited English. Leonard spoke no Japanese. And there was never doubting the depth um, of their companionship. And they would just sit together in silence. Uh, and I think that's when they really spoke to one another. Mm. And the teacher would say, well, let's not talk, because talking is only going to make for divisions. Mm. Let's be together. Mm. Uh, and I remember, I, I'd say Leonard was the most spellbindingly articulate writer I ever met. Mm. And one time I went to his house, we had lunch together, and he spoke mesmerizingly about literature and politics and the journey of the soul and everything possible. It's a delight just to listen to him. Anyone who heard him in concert or knows his interviews knows about this. Mm. Uh, and then suddenly, when lunch was over, he picked up two chairs, folding chairs, smaller than these, and they took, he took them out to his little garden, which looked out on a tiny flower bed on a quiet residential street. And he sat down, and I sat down next to him, and then nothing. Mm. Didn't say a word. Mm. And I waited and waited. Five minutes passed, nothing. <laughs> Ten minutes passed, nothing. Then, clever me, thought, maybe this is a gentle hint. And so I said, excuse me, you must have things to do. I should leave you. Mm -hmm. He looked at me beseechingly. Please don't go. 
Mm. And I realized from his Zen practice, he'd realized that sharing silence is a real act of trust and friendship, much more than just sharing our words or ideas. Mm. So it's a long roundabout way of saying that I can't claim to understand Zen practice, but I do think it frees people from attachment to words, ideas, and self. Mm -hmm. And a few things more moving than seeing Leonard Cohen at the age of 61 shoveling snow and scrubbing floors and just an anonymous monk in a tattered robe dancing attention on everybody around him, having shared his name, his person, whatever he'd achieved in the world. I mean, far beyond what most of us could dream of attaining in mm. life. Um, but I th when I saw that, the first time I took my wife, who grew up around the temples of southern Kyoto, to Leonard Cohen's temple, and she, she didn't really know much about him as a singer or presence. So we were there in the zendo, and she came out, and she thought he was the abbot, because his, mm -hmm. his form was so perfect and precise, and mm -hmm. a model of attention and discipline. Mm. Um, and he was that, although all the other monks were much younger than he. So, anyway, mm. I shouldn't go off on Leonard no, Cohen, no. but you, you made the mistake of mentioning Zen, so I'm yes, off and I love it, and I'm now having fantasies, um, serious a request for a, just a silent uh, moderation next time. We're going <laughs> to sit. And <laughs> yes, what we need is a silent speaker, me. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 please don't, please continue. Um, but actually, um, I, do, I know you have another passage prepared. Um, I, I, far from wanting you to be silent, I'd actually love to touch on that second passage, yes. if that would be all right. Yes, um, so one of the other presences, one of the presences in this book is the Zen master in whose temple I met my, my wife, who always delighted in being our Cupid and kind of presided over us like a spiritual godfather of kinds. One of the other presences is the Dalai Lama. I've been lucky enough to uh, be talking and traveling with him for 45 years now, since my teens, and he comes to Japan every November, and we spend November traveling across Japan with him. So maybe I'll read a passage uh, in which we visit the Dalai Lama in his hotel room in Kyoto, and we remember traveling with him across Japan two years earlier. <coughs> As we look in on the Dalai Lama, I recall the November day two years ago when we traveled up with him to a fishing village north of Tokyo laid waste by the tsunami of eight months earlier. A few miles out of the city of Sendai, we began passing along clean, modern roads lined by nothing but compacted trash, block-long rectangles of smashed cars and refuse, telephone poles listed at 45-degree angles, a solitary chair sat in the open skeleton of what had once been a living room, buses bobbed on the water beside us. When we pulled up at Ishinomaki, hundreds had gathered along the road there to greet the famous visitor it was to see nothing but a flattened landscape that looked like pictures I'd seen of Hiroshima after the bombs. More than 3,000 had lost their lives in this village alone, many of them children. 19,000 had lost their homes. The Dalai Lama stepped out of his car and strode without hesitation to the people, mostly women, who had assembled in the streets to see him. Many were sobbing or calling out in limited English, thank you. Thank you. He held one person's head against his chest. He blessed another. He touched heads, shook hands, looked deep into one set of eyes, then the next. What do you feel? 
Are you still sad? Please, he told them. The women sobbed and others pushed forward. Please, be brave. Please, change your hearts. You cannot change what has happened. Please, help everyone else. Help others become okay. The crowd felt quiet. Some of its members nodded. Too many people died, he went on. If you worry, it cannot help them. Please, work hard. That is the best offering you can make to the ones you lost. Rebuild your community as your country rebuilt itself after the war. It's the kind of advice that anyone might give, perhaps, but when he turned around to walk towards the temple that had somehow survived, gravestones in the foreground tilted crazily over or knocked down entirely. I saw the Dalai Lama take off his glasses and wipe away a tear himself. Suffering is the central fact of life from his Buddhist viewpoint. It's what we do with it that defines our lives. One day later, we return with the Dalai Lama and his bodyguards to his hotel, hasten up in the elevator to the top floor, and walk at high speed down the corridor with him to his room. His eyes are often red after a long day of events, but his pace never slackens. He's holding Hiroko's hand as he moves forwards, as in some physical expression of his teaching, he reflexively reaches for any set of hands to grasp between his own as he strides along. Just before we arrive at his door, Hiroko says, Your Holiness, we must leave you now, but thank you for everything. He's on his way to Tokyo next day. We have obligations at home. Also, she says, and her voice begins to falter just a little, I want to tell you, my father passed away this year. Instantly, the fast-stepping monk stops. He looks at her directly. When? This year. What cause? No cause. He was old. His body was tired. He steps forward and holds her for a long, long time. Then he steps back and looks searchingly at her. Remember, only body gone. Spirit still there, only cover gone. Then he heads into the room and at this threshold turns around to wave at us briskly, good night, thank you, and then is gone as we head back into the golden flares of late afternoon. Thank you. Um, that just brings me back to so many of the themes that we've touched on today and uh, um, the, the, the kind of the global and the personal scale and, and the, uh, the constancy of suffering, um, mm. which he references and w which, you, which you highlight. Um, and it, it reminded me of some of the passages you have in the book of, you mentioned Hiroshima um, and then the tsunami, and there's a very real memory of wartime and suffering in Japan. Yes and how it occurs even for Hiroko's parents and their yeah. generation especially, um, some of whom make up the demographic of your ping pong club, which yes. we haven't gotten a chance to speak of yet. Um, how does this very real contact with sudden death and, and tragic death, um, how, is, how does that affect these Japanese understandings of, of life and death? Well, um, I loved it when you said just now about 
the Dalai Lama's sense of the constancy of suffering. Mm. And what I put that together with is any of you who've heard the Dalai Lama or seen him on screen know that he's remarkable for three things. His really robust laugh, his mm. constant smile, and his indomitable sense of optimism. Mm. And I sometimes think of all the people I've met in my life, he's probably suffered the most. Mm. He had to leave his homeland at the age of 24. In exile, he saw his senior tutor die, his mother die, his elder brother die. He hasn't been able to visit his home for 60 years. Mm. So anyone looking at it, no life could seem more precious. Mm. And yet, I think the reason so many people turn to the Dalai Lama as a global friend is there are few people who are more optimistic and better able to pass on an infectious sense of confidence. Mm. Um, and so I wanted him in the book for that presence, too. Mm. Uh, and you mentioned ping pong. And um, apart from the autumn, the main presence <laughs> in this book is my daily games of ping pong with my 70- uh, and 80-year-old neighbors in Japan. And it was important to have this inner book about death, because every time I go to the ping pong table, it's mm -hmm. pure laughter and mm -hmm. merriment. And although they're 83 years old, my friends are you know, more or less dancing around the, um, the ping pong table. They're jumping up and down when they score a point. That many of the pressures of the life, which were intense in Japan, are behind them. Yeah. And again, it's a reminder to me that autumn has graces that spring can't imagine. And that the slow winding down of a life doesn't mean we're moving towards sadness, though it's sometimes we may be moving towards physical pain. In the people around me, I'm sure they're happier at the age of 80 than they were at the age of 40, mm -hmm. uh, because the men in particular who were tethered to the salaryman routine in the prime of their life finally have sloughed that off. They didn't have much time to be good fathers, but they can be good grandfathers. Mm -hmm. uh, and playing ping pong for four hours a day was unimaginable to them until they hit the age of 70, and suddenly they can enjoy life for the mm -hmm. first time. So I wanted the ping pong table in there, or the ping pong games in there, uh, as a reminder again that life isn't moving in a single direction. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's not a matter of entropy. And it's not as if we're all so joyful when we're in our 20s, because many of us are confused there, mm -hmm. and so stricken when we're in our 70s, but sometimes even the other way around. Mm -hmm. um, and the Dalai Lama is certainly, the I've known him since 1974, and I think his sense of robust optimism is as strong now as it was then. Mm -hmm. uh, he celebrated his 84th birthday yesterday, and um, he's going strong, I think. It's a beautiful anniversary to mark yes, for us. Yes. Um, I, I love the ping pong club, and I'm so glad that we're speaking about it. Um, and, and I'm so glad that you brought up these uh, retired men, because um, yes. you mentioned in the book that uh, you seldom had contact with men. You kind of roamed in the worlds of women um, yes, while the yes. men were all at work, but yes, here you yes. see them light up yes. in a way. Um, and uh, you speak about them being in an autumn, but it's also really interesting because it's an autumn of Japan as well, because these men yes. built the financial yes. giant that yes. Japan was yes. and, and is now transforming into yeah. maybe another season for Japan. I'm not sure what it is. Maybe you could speak a bit on this, the, you know, the seasons that Japan is experiencing as a country on yes. the global scale, on the global stage. And it might be the, the winter of their geopolitical discontent. And in other mm -hmm. words, when I moved to Japan, it was 1987, Japan seemed to be taking over the world, buying up a lot of the United States. And then by 1995, suddenly the bubble had exploded and Japan mm -hmm. was stuck in a stagnation that remained to, to this day. So you're right, my friends in the ping pong table had helped to construct 
the Japanese miracle because most of them I realized were born in the 1930s, grew up during the dark days of war, mm. seven days of seven years of harrowing occupation, mm -hmm. and then they joined Mitsubishi and Sony and, and Toyota and built what we used to refer to as the Japanese miracle. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly the Japanese miracle got beached. But I think one of the things I'm trying to do again and again in the book when I mention the war, for example, is to show how again, things play out in ways we never could have expected. So my father-in-law, whose death begins the book, uh, spent seven years in the Japanese army, mm. five years in Manchuria, and two years in a Siberian prisoner of war camp. Mm -hmm. And his hometown was Hiroshima. So actually, the horror of being in a Siberian prisoner of war camp is what kept him alive. Uh, if he'd mm. been in Hiroshima, he wouldn't be here, my yeah. wife wouldn't be alive, and who knows where I would be. Um, mm. So uh, it, it's a remarkable thing that being a prisoner of war is actually what released him. And mm. there's a wonderful moment my wife told me a few years ago, how he finally, in 1948, was able to return to Japan. Mm. So he sent um, a letter back to his mother, who was in Hiroshima and had survived, to report that he was coming back safely. But in the chaos of those years, the letter never arrived. So he returned back to Hiroshima, and he's walking down the street. And as he was walking down the street, he walked right past his mother, incredibly. And she turned around, and mm. she said, do you have feet? Because in Japan, yeah. ghosts are believed not to have feet. And so she just assumed that she was seeing a ghost. Her long-lost son, she hadn't right. seen for seven years, in war, far away, suddenly walking past her in the street. And again, mm. that plays off. The fact that, as I say, when I visit my mother-in-law, she will say, I've met my missing son, mm. and we assume she hadn't. Mm -hmm. In this case, the older woman assumed she'd lost her missing son, but there he was, and she couldn't believe her good luck. Mm. Um, and so the book is meant to be a thread of these uh, unimaginable events mm. to show the, ga the games that the mind can play and the way that reality has its own designs, intricate, mm -hmm. as Shakespearean that are playing out beyond all that. Well, I love that, and I love that kind of um, alertness to the uh, the opportunities of tragedy, if I can say that. Just oh, that's beautiful. Just, um, I mean, yes. I know, and you've also spoken previously about how a fire devastated your home in California, yes. Yes. and you didn't even have five minutes to gather up your writing materials, but on the other hand, if you had had five minutes less, you wouldn't even be here yes. speaking to us. So these um, this optimism that you speak of is, uh, I think it's a, it's a really valuable perspective. Yeah, well, thank you. I was talking to some people yesterday on the other side of town that about how my sense is that at every moment we have more choice than we imagine, not complete choice, but especially those of us in a room like this who are quite privileged mm -hmm. to see the moment as loss or, or opportunity. Hmm. And I never forget, I, I once wrote a book on the Dalai Lama, and I remember one of the things that most struck me in my many years of researching that was when he arrived in India, finally, um, after a 14-day flight with a Chinese plane circling overhead over the highest mountain on Earth, and he finally got to India, and he turned around to his brother, and the first thing he said to his younger brother was, now we are free. So mm. he just lost his country, he just lost his seeming destiny, he just lost his life as mm -hmm. we would see it, but he's not seeing loss, he's seeing opportunity. Mm -hmm. And as soon as he arrived in India, he thought, now I can do all kinds of things with the Tibetan community I never could have done if I was stuck in Lhasa amidst centuries of, of, of precedent and, and tradition. Uh, now I can offer women opportunities in the Tibetan community. It would have been very hard to make possible mm. in old Tibet. Mm. Now I can bring democracy to my people, as might have been very difficult too. Mm. So what we see as loss and exile 
he instinctively, from the first second, sees as possibilities. And mm -hmm. so seeing that kind of thing makes me think, as you were saying, when I lost my house, and the day after I lost everything in the world, I called my long-suffering editor in uh, England, and I said, I'd been working for many years on a book about Cuba, by which I was possessed, and I said mm -hmm. to him, I'm really sorry, I'm not going to be able to send you that book, because mm. all my notes are gone. Mm. And because he was a very kind man, he commiserated with me, but mm. because he was a very wise man, he said, well, actually, losing your notes could be the best thing that could happen to you as a mm. writer. Mm. Because we're one kind of person when we're writing from notes, and we're mm. another when we're writing from memory and mm. imagination mm. and emotion. And that actually, that seeming loss of everything I owned could liberate me to do things I would be too scared or shy to try otherwise. So mm -hmm. because I was still haunted by Cuba, but couldn't write my nonfiction book, I tried to become a novelist. And mm. I wrote a terrible novel, but I tried a novel, which I never might have done otherwise, mm. uh, thanks to that fire. Mm. And when it came to replacing the things from the fire, um, I realized that the material things, the books and the clothes and the furniture, I didn't need 90% mm. of them. Mm. And the only things that I really would have cherished, which were my notes and my photos and my mementos, were gone forever. But I, I think I, that loss taught me to live more lightly on the earth mm -hmm. and, and showed me all the ways I could do things that would, would never have been possible before. I love that. I love that. And um, speaking of opportunities, I have one more question, and then I will give the audience the opportunity to ask Kiko some questions. So please start uh, keeping them in mind. A question would be, um, questions are much appreciated. Um, Pico, we've been speaking extensively about Japan and seasons, and yet here we sit in the Museum of Vancouver. And I can't help but cheekily want to ask <laughs> you about your writings on Canada, which you've uh -huh. been so generous about this country. Um, what season do you feel Canada is in, and what gifts does it bring to the world? I feel Canada is in its spring. And the mm. rest of the world is in the winter and wants needs to catch up with Canada. And of course, as you say, I'm generous about Canada and much more generous about Canada than many Canadians would be. Anyone who lives here knows that there are imperfections. It's, it's not an ideal place. But since the time of Pierre Trudeau, I think Canada has had this global consciousness, the idea that you can make a new kind of society. Mm. And he consciously realized or saw that globalism was the way the world was moving mm -hmm. and thought, rather than back away from this, let's move towards it and see how we can work with it to create something new. Mm. Uh, I, I know I was saying to you earlier this afternoon, a couple of years ago, 20,000 people applied for refugee status in Japan, 27 received. Meanwhile, Toronto alone was taking in 40,000 Syrian refugees. Mm. Canada is receiving 400 times more refugees than Japan, which is a country that I love. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I know any, I, so I've come to Canada at least once a year for each of the last 26 years, and mm -hmm. I'm always quite bullish about Canada. And whenever mm. I am, look, Canadians rightly rise up and tell me, no, we've got these problems. We haven't worked things out. Mm. We're not great. Mm. And I love hearing that. Because it's one of the things I love about Canada. It's modesty, it's self-deprecation, and it's questioning of itself. In America, we hear a lot about making America great again. Um, Canada's <laughs> making itself ungreat again, which mm. is a, a huge <laughs> step forwards. Uh, so I'm always glad when I see that Canadians are vexed about these. We need mm. to be more diverse, more inclusive, more just, all that. It's a great thing. I don't hear those conversations in New York or London mm. or Sydney. Mm. So I always ask my Canadian friends, yes, this isn't perfect 
but please, which country do you look to for really creating a global community? Is it Dubai? Mm. Is it Singapore? Is it Hong Kong? Is it South Africa, Australia, England, US? I'm not sure any of them is doing a better job than Canada. Mm. Um, and in the last couple of years, a lot of people in the US have wakened up to the sense that they wish they had what Canada has. Yes. But uh, it's a bit of a cliche, perhaps. It's an outsider's perspective. But I love the way that um, Canada seems to blend a sense of history with a sense of the future. Uh, mm -hmm. And I grew up in England where we had plenty of history but no future tense. Mm -hmm. And uh, my parents moved to California where we all lived in the future tense mm -hmm. and had no sense of what had gone but behind mm -hmm. uh, before mm -hmm. us. It was like moving from an 80, 90 year old to a six year old. Mm -hmm. um, and I see Canada as somewhere in the middle. And uh, you know, when, when Nelson Mandela was finally released from prison, uh, Seamus Heaney wrote, once in a lifetime, hope and history can rhyme. And I feel mm. in Canada, they, you maintain the hope and the sense of history at the same time, in mm -hmm. the same sentence, which is certainly what we all aspire to do. Mm. Um, so yes, I am positive about Canada. <laughs> oh, I really appreciate that. And I love the pairing of hope and history. You know, When Sirish did his introduction, he pointed us literally to the lands that were that history, occupied yeah. by First Nations. Yeah. And Canada keeps that awareness. Um, even as it moves forward and welcomes newcomers, so it's an it's, it's an interesting time, and it's a it's also got yeah. its own travails. But I, I love that hope and history. That's a and that lovely. The awareness of the past may be stronger now in Canada than it was 20 years ago. I think so. There More articulation yes. on it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, which I do really appreciate. Wonderful. I'm hoping that you have some questions for Pico. He's uh, if you have a question, just raise a hand, and um, Indian Summer will bring a mic to you. Stunned into submission, we my did goodness. It, we did it. <laughs> oh, good. Here's a question. Um, we have a question in the front. Oh, good. And mm -hmm. later, there's one back there I see in the middle. Thank you so much. Um, you open with describing the seasons and how contemplating the seasons is a very consoling or um, enjoyable thing to do. Uh, but one thing that is much on my mind, and I think almost everyone's mind, is the future and the changes that are coming that are not necessarily cyclical in nature, mm -hmm. but yeah. they have to be more mm -hmm. with the forces of chaos and large-scale mm. change. Mm -hmm. And I was hoping that you might have some words of either advice or hope or consolation when it comes to thinking about the changes that are being wrought on the earth by, by humans. Mm. Thank you. No, mm. thank you for bringing the most urgent issue of the day into the room and into the conversation. I think most of you would have more words of wisdom than I do about that. Uh, in this book, I'm trying to look at, you could say, the human equivalent to climate change. Mm -hmm. In other words, humans living longer than ever before, August coming in mid-February in the human life, people living long after their minds and memories have come apart, and that, in the sort of family context, what the consequences are of, as you said, perfectly, the cycles being exploded, and we're not knowing how to navigate this terrain where suddenly we have 97-year-old people all around us whose minds gave out when they were 87, and how when we're in our mid-70s and failing ourselves, we're looking after our 100-year-old parents. But um, I, I absolutely agree with you that climate change is the essential thing. This is such a private domestic book that I deliberately am not looking at, at political issues. But the more our politicians look at them, the better. Um, mm. I'm sorry not to shed any wisdom, but um, I feel most people here know more about it than I do. Mm. Thank you, the politicians and the people. So we must all vote. Right here. 
Hello. Would you mind telling us a little bit more about your friendship with the Honorable Dalai Lama, please? So um, my father was a philosopher, and he knew a lot about many religions. And so uh, when the Dalai Lama left Tibet and came into India in 1959, I think my father was one of the relatively few people who realized there's this great storehouse of Tibetan wisdom and tradition was available to the rest of the world for the first time ever. So my father sailed all the way back from England to India and requested an audience with the Dalai Lama. And the Dalai Lama, as soon as he arrived in India, realized this was his first chance to talk to all kinds of people. So he invited my father up. They had a long talk. And in the course of that talk, um, my father said to the Dalai Lama, Your Holiness, I actually have this little three-year-old kid back in England. And he took a very keen interest in the story of your flight. The Dalai Lama's great gift is for making finding the common ground between him and whomever he meets. So as soon as he heard about the three-year-old kid, he found a picture of himself when he was four years old. Mm -hmm. And he was already on the lion throne in Lhasa, ruling six million Tibetans and 14 million Tibetan Buddhists. So he sent me that present through my father when I was three years old. And I, can st and I put it on my desk. And of course, I didn't quite know who the Dalai Lama was. But I do remember every time when I was growing up, if I was feeling sorry for myself, and I was thinking, oh gosh, life is a little difficult for me alone in England with my parents 6,000 miles away, I only had to look at this picture of a four-year-old who was already ruling six million people mm. and uh, put things in perspective. Oh. And then we moved, <laughs> moved to California. I still had it on my desk. And then, of course, when we had a forest fire, the photo was reduced to ash. Mm. And in some ways, to me, that's the fitting climax to the story because it reminded me you can't hold on to material things. You can't hold on to pictures. But if you hold on to the values that the pictures represent, then those can be with you for as long as you are alive. Um, I first met him uh, in his home in Dharamshala when I was 17. And although uh, I couldn't follow most of what he was saying to my father when they were talking in high philosophical levels, of course, it left an impression. And then when he started coming to North America in 1979, I would always go and see him. And I visited Tibet as soon as it was opened in 1985. We're, so we're very lucky now. As I say, we travel with him across Japan every November. And he lets us sit in on all his private audiences, as well as all his public events. Uh, and it's fascinating to see the Dalai Lama talk one minute to scientists, the next to Japanese religious leaders, the next to people in politics, the next minute to heavy metal musicians. And with each person, he'll find exactly the productive way whereby they can talk together and move something forward. And one of the most moving things, again, I was saying this yesterday to another um, group of people. We, at 8.30 in the morning, we leave his hotel room, and we go down to um, the lobby of the hotel. And there'll usually be maybe 100 people gathered there, because the word has passed that around that the Dalai Lama is there. And some people will be wanting to get blessings from him. Some will go approach him with really deep questions. Some want to present him scarves. And every time even a six-year-old girl comes in front of him and presents him with a scarf, he brings his whole attention to that six-year-old girl as if she were the Buddha. And one day later, when he's talking to a huge audience in Tokyo, he'll talk about what he learned from the six-year-old girl. And the people in Tokyo may assume that this is something scripted, but we've been next to him and he realized he's genuinely responding to everything around him. He's he, he goes through eight-hour days. He never stops. Uh, and I'm 22 years younger, and I get exhausted just watching him go through his day. Uh, but one reason that he has all that attention and energy to bring to people 
is that he's up at 3.30 every morning meditating for five hours before his day begins. And I think one of the things that makes an impression on me is that whenever we go into his hotel room, there are two things there. One is a telescope, because he knows that whether he's in Vancouver or Prague or Sydney, Australia, the skies are always different. And he wants to see how the planets look in each different place, mm -hmm. trying to learn. And also, always on the table is a half-open newspaper. And he mm -hmm. follows the news more closely than most journalists I know. Mm -hmm. So that, that he's a master realist who nonetheless is an optimist. And that's a combination of things that's very hard to find. And I think that's part of the reason why he and his great friend, Archbishop Tutu, and now Pope Francis also maybe are such beacons to the world. One of the great moments in my life was not far from here when Archbishop Tutu and the Dalai Lama were receiving honorary awards yeah. from BBC and SFU, I think, at the same time. Uh, and there was a church, there's an Anglican church there where they were both receiving their awards. Yes. And yeah, we, yeah, do you remember that moment? Mm -hmm. um, and I know Vancouver is very close to, to his heart for mm -hmm. that and other reasons. Thank you so much for that wonderful question. Do we have do I see a, a hand over there? Oh, yes, we do, yes. Oh, maybe a oh. And there was one in the middle. Oh, yes, this gentleman, I can see him there right now. There it is. So okay, so we'll we do that one, and then we'll go to you. Can you hear me? Mm. So a few things. One thing is, what's the, what's the shortest amount of time it ever took you to write a book, and what's the longest? Because I just finished one on Japan, and it took me eight years. And I realized that I'm not the same person I was when I began writing it. Yeah. So I might have to redo the whole thing. <laughs> and the other thing is, I lived for 12 years in Japan, six of those in a pretty precarious, unhappy, dangerous situation. But knowing that you were in Japan as well, and like I clung to your words. Oh, I read your you. books, and I read your articles. I think I found you first in The Sun, the magazine. Oh, heavens. And I just, it's just such an honor to get to actually see you in person, so. Thank you, I'm going to look forward, you. does your book have a title? It, it was called These Little Earthquakes, but I've since changed it to um, The Safest Place. Ooh, yeah. given that you were describing a dangerous situation, I like the title already. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Um, so, uh, I think the, the first rule of anyone who writes, and many of you know this, is you only find out what the book should be two-thirds of the way through, and then you have to find the courage to write the whole first two-thirds again in the light of what you've discovered. Mm -hmm. I've never had that courage. Mm -hmm. uh, so I've never been able to write the book I should have written. Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of how long it took, <laughs> uh, my first book, which, which I wrote when I was in my 20s, uh, I was writing on a leave of absence from Time magazine, a six-month leave of absence. So I traveled at high speed through 10 countries in Asia for four months. And then I had to write uh, a 370-page book in three months. So the result is fast food. <laughs> I wrote very quickly, and I think you read it very quickly, and then it evaporates. This book, as you can tell, it took me 16 years. So I hope one can feel all the silences here, the, the pressure of everything that isn't said. Um, the, with a book before this, which I spent many, many years on, I wrote 3,000 pages, and then I took out 2,740 of those pages. Wow. So that I hope, again, um, everything that wasn't said was simmering under the surface would really be what would, and, and that, you know, the Tibetans always say, it's better to dig one well 60 feet deep than 10 wells six feet deep. So I was trying to dig a well really, really deep, and that took a long, long time. Mm -hmm. And I, a part of me does think the faster a book is written, the faster it's consumed, and the faster it's forgotten. So the fact it took you eight years sounds like a very good sign to me. And if it, yeah. Um, 
I'm, I'm a believer in taking a long, long time. And I remember he was speaking about Leonard Cohen. You probably remember songs of his like Anthem, which is fairly short. He spent 12 years writing a short song of maybe 20 lines. So um, I learned from him, among other things, the virtue of taking each word seriously and, and taking each absence even more seriously. I look forward to reading your book. And Pico, maybe can I insert a follow-up question to that? How do you sustain those long years? And kind of going back, you mentioned a lot of long walks and yes. so on. So how, how, how does one continue through those depths? Um, yes, and, and as was said so well in the question, one's a different person at the end of yeah. eight years or 16 years. Yeah. I think the writing itself is the least of, okay. takes very little time. Yeah. Um, uh, anyone who's received emails from me know as I write too much too quickly. But it's, it's the finding out what should be there and taking all the things out. Yeah. And so in that sense, the, the filling of 200 pages in this book, I was probably in a single mood when I was doing that. Mm -hmm. But to get to that place, um, it's like climbing a mountain. Mm -hmm. All the exertions, when you're finally at the top, that part is relatively easy. So um, I, while I was writing this book, I found in my closet 130 pages I'd written of it that I'd completely forgotten about. You know, I'd, <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd gone in myriad different wrong directions previously. Mm. And then to make it easy on myself, I decided to concentrate just one season, one neighborhood, and as I say, keep everything momentous out, to write a book about nothing happening, mm. um, which, is <laughs> which is hard to write. It's even harder to read such a book. But yeah. um, <laughs> I'd to you know, keep as much out as possible yeah. and then go as deeply as possible into the handful of segments that remain. But your deeper question about how to sustain an emotional continuity over a long time while many things are happening each day, mm -hmm. uh, it's a real challenge. And we can probably only write about something after it's happened. Mm. So that's why I wrote this book in the last couple of years, about 2013, because I felt that by then, by 2017, I could understand some of what had happened. The time and space. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so sorry to keep you from your question. Yes, this gentleman's had a hand up for a while. And there's another one back there, I think. Thank you. Um, it's worth waiting. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really like the poetic side of the Japanese culture that you brought out and uh, looking out of the window and seeing the birds soaring and the light playing on the water and the mountains. It seems like the right place for it as well. Maybe Vancouver is a place that you can experience that uh, harmony with nature and the changing of the seasons. But um, my question comes more from what you said about the Japanese men with the ping pong club, but the fact that previously they didn't have that freedom, and is that a different side of Japanese and possibly also Chinese culture that they push people too hard? Uh, maybe, especially the men, but also maybe as women get into the workforce, them as well. and. Why is that, and, and uh, can, can that change, do you think? Is that the influence of modernism? Mm. Uh, do you have some reflections on that? Thank you. I think it's the influence of not being modern enough. Uh, and I wish there were more women in the workforce. The first book I wrote on Japan 31 years ago was about the predicament of women who were almost written out of the public story in Japan. And 31 years on, I don't think that has improved. And you're absolutely right. Uh, if in an ideal world I would want to spend every hour of every day in Japan, I really love it, being a foreigner, but I would never want to be Japanese because the pressures, as you say, are so intense. Uh, and I think 
over 1,400 years, like their neighbors, they've worked out a pretty good way of functioning. So things run on time, they work well on their own terms, and therefore they're very reluctant to change them, which has meant they've fallen behind a huge amount in the global economy. Uh, and uh, mm. the men are under great pressures to devote all their hours in the office to the exclusion of their families. The women are under great pressure never to set foot in the office, and, and if they do, not to be given many opportunities at all. So I think there's a lot that the Japanese system could improve upon, and that's one reason why I've chosen to spend 32 years on a, on a tourist visa mm. um, there, mm. <laughs> because mm. I'm not mm. a great admirer necessarily of the Japanese system, so to speak, corporate Japan. Mm. The other thing I'll say um, is that if by some amazing fluke you don't enjoy this book, which is about my little neighborhood, I've got a book on Japan coming out six weeks from now, which is much more about the kind of things you're describing. It's called A Beginner's Guide to Japan, and it's about everything from the, the history to the fashion victims to the baseball games to the love hotels to the economic stagnation. And, then, and this book is meant to be almost a Japanese neighborhood presenting itself unmediated to you. And that book is meant to be almost an outsider, a typical foreigner speaking back to Japan, but many of the things that surprise us and that, that don't stand, such as I think what you're mentioning, that people are under an inhuman degree of pressure often. And as a foreigner, you reap the benefits of it, but you also see the costs. Uh, you know, one million people in Japan are hikikomori, which means they never leave their rooms. Uh, not so long ago, somebody was taking his or her own life every 15 minutes. Um, there's a huge amount of loneliness in Japan. Uh, and one reason many women want to escape Japan is that they are offered so few opportunities, but the other is the pressures of the society, the mother-in-law, expectations too. Um, I'm so happy though what you said about the scene behind us. And it should be said that at one point about two weeks ago, we were thinking of having this event in a very different auditorium. And our wise leader, Sirius, said, no, it has to be this backdrop. And I think the way he envisioned this afternoon was to have all this here, uh, <laughs> partly as a diversion <laughs> or an improvement on what you're listening to. <laughs> but anyway, he, he also said, you know, it's, it's, a it's about nature and scenes and from the sky, and this is where we have to have it. And I'm so grateful he came up with that idea and that you responded to it. So thank you. Thank you. I think we have time for one more question, and there was a hand in the back. Is this on? Um, after spending 16 years going into this well that was this book, when you come back out, do you see the rest of the world in a different way? I certainly, um, so I go back and my mother lives in uh, California. And so and she's alone and I'm her only child. So I spend a lot of time in California with my mother. And I think everyone who leaves Japan and flies anywhere else is shocked as soon as you arrive at the airport in Vancouver or San Francisco or London. You know, why is it so disheveled? Why are people so loud? Why, <laughs> why are things not in their place as they're, they're meant to be? So I think especially as a foreigner in Japan, you get very, very spoiled. Because the whole of Japan is like a nurturing mother telling you, I feel you're safe, you're comfortable, I'll protect you. Uh, and part of that extends even to a foreigner. And when you're loose in the big bag world, you're suddenly unprotected and it's hard to adjust. So I think reverse culture shock for me is particularly acute whenever I, I leave Japan. Uh, and I think it's such a good question. Of course, the beauty of travel is it helps you to appreciate the place you started out from more. So when I go back to California, 
There are certain things I appreciate about it that I didn't before, which I think Japan would be glad of. And when my Japanese wife visits California, she points out all the things that are fascinating and exotic to her um, about California, which I might not have seen with my uh, jaded eyes. In terms of the 16 years um, of writing the book, how that has changed the way I look at things, maybe not so much, uh, except, except of course, I was a different person 16 years ago. Mm. Uh, but I probably, ever since I arrived in Japan, I had this sense I was leaving a culture based on the pursuit of happiness for a culture based on the Buddhist notion of the reality of suffering. And I was leaving a culture that's about, as I was saying, the future tense into a culture that's very grounded in the past. And so, because those were some of my ideas when I first moved to Japan, they're probably still some of the ideas of what I want to learn from Japan, and maybe that hasn't changed um, so much. One of the interesting things I mention in this book is that at some point, um, a young friend of mine from Los Angeles arrived for his first day ever in Japan, and he asked if, I could, if he could meet me. So we got together, and uh, he's a very erudite, thoughtful young man. And he started reading me out sentences about Japan. They were amazing. I said, my goodness, how did you know that? Where did you get that? I would never see that in a million years. And he looked at me a little strangely. And finally he said, well, these were all in the book you wrote 31 <laughs> years ago. <laughs> and the reason I included that is I could see much more when I arrived in Japan mm -hmm. than I can now. Mm -hmm. And one of the other ideas I wanted to get at here is the young have a wisdom that the old would envy mm. uh, and fresh eyes have an aliveness that eyes of acquaintance don't. Mm. And I know much less about Japan in certain ways than I do when, when I arrive. Mm. Uh, and mm. that's one of the things I learned in the process of, of writing this book, that, mm. um, that I might have a certain youthfulness that my young friend would envy, but he has a wisdom that I, in my agedness, would envy too. Mm. Um, and therefore, life is never the way you think it is. Mm. That's a lovely note to end on. Um, as we sit here in the summer light, speaking about Kiko's beautiful book, Autumn Light, please, he's been very um, humble. It is, um, it is completely untrue. It's a delightful and deep <laughs> and worthwhile read. And um, he has, you have different reflections, but they're equally valid, if not more. And um, they, they're deep and thoughtful and generous as you've been with us today. So. Thank you, Pico, for bringing this book here, and thank you for being in Vancouver with us. And thanks to Indian Summer Festival, and all of you. Thank you. Um. Just before our fearless leader speaks, I really want to thank Anna. I mean, it's very, very hard work to guide a conversation, to come up with constantly new questions. All the questions you're just asking were different from the ones we had in our first conversation. And thank you for putting all the time and heart into it. I really appreciate it. Well, you make it very easy. Thank you. Thank you.